You are listening to episode five of the Copyright and Intellectual Property Podcast. I'm Jason Tucker, and I've settled over a billion dollars in copyright claims for the world's largest studios. Over the last 15 years as the expert pirate hunter, IP problem solver, and enforcer, I have helped shape copyright law, the processes, and the landscape that exists today. So how do you keep your IP organized, protect it from pirates, and make even more money off of your content? With real-life insight and stories from the trenches, this is the Copyright and Intellectual Property Podcast. It's story time. I'm going to talk about copyright trolls and how they work and give you my inside view of Prenda Law, the most accomplished trolls to ever get convicted. This podcast will teach you what a troll is and how they work. As an example and to tie the concept together, I'm going to share my behind-the-scenes view and story of Prenda Law and a few others. It involves porn and drugs and money and fraud, and it's a learning opportunity. You're going to learn what to look for in case a copyright troll sends you a demanding love letter, what you can do about it, if you're a producer, what not to do to get sucked into this garbage. I may sidetrack a bit for story, and then I'll bring it back around again. Keep in mind, there is a legitimate way to do what I'm talking about or what I'm going to talk about. Getty Images is a good example of that. 100% of the time, they're right. I've seen they're right. And uh, when they send a letter, the person who receives it has used one of their images and they file suits. That's the right way to do it. So just kind of keep that in mind that this technique is not all bad. So first copyright trolls, then we're going to talk about the popular password trading scheme that's running now. So a copyright troll is defined as a person or company that enforces copyrights it owns for purposes of making money through litigation in a manner considered unduly aggressive or opportunistic, generally without producing or licensing the work it owns for paid distribution. I'm going to give you my own little definition using some of the same words. To me, a copyright troll is a person or company that looks to sue everyone and anyone they can for profit. A troll doesn't really care about content, doesn't gather evidence to a degree that there is solid, provable, usable, 100% spot on evidence, and they don't look for solutions to piracy. Rather, they want the proliferation of piracy so they can collect money. The main source of revenue for any troll is money through the threat of litigation. And that's something to keep in mind, that threat of a lawsuit. If you're not familiar with Prenda Law and its partners are and were John Steele, Paul Hansmeyer, and John Duffy. All three were disbarred. John and Paul were fined. Paul was sentenced to 14 years in prison. He was staring down the barrel of a lot more. John Steele will be sentenced in July 2019. Duffy offed himself with booze. They were the perfect blend of troll and greed. This is not a gloat session. This is not an I told you so. But I've been seeing write-ups and hearing stories from talking heads who have opinions, and I know what was going on. I had multiple invitations to join the party. The curtain was pulled back for me. And so I'm going to share from my point of view what I believe is the real story of Prenda Law. And like I said before, more importantly, the lessons we can learn from it. I had a front row seat to their beginning and VIP tickets to one of the dirtiest copyright troll farms dressed up as a law office we've ever seen. Prenda Law. I was asked throughout the years to join them. And at all times, I said the same thing. No fucking way. These guys were just wrong. And now these former attorneys, I mean, these guys committed fraud, identity theft, perjury at all levels. They lied to federal judges. They lied to their clients and they hurt legitimate copyright claimants. I'm not sure of that. No, I am. That bothers me. But what really gets me is that these people caused harm and stress and real embarrassment, not just to to studios, but to real, what the adult industry calls civilians, non-industry people who got swept up in their game. Now, 
when their model stopped being a cash cow, they switched it up to go after suspected password traders. Now, the password trader model had teeth and still does, but they were so dirty at that point, judges were doubting them and service providers just didn't believe them. So, like I said, we'll get into that later. Sorry. <laughs> just It's a lot of emotion tied up in this. Now, here's a non-technical summary of how trolls deploy what I'll call the torrent user lawsuit model. You put content on a computer, you connect the computer to a torrent site, and you wait. When people start pulling the file, you're going to gather all those IP addresses. Those IP addresses are like computers' phone numbers on the internet. When you have a lot of IP addresses, you need to now figure out who they belong to and, and kind of put a, a name to a number. So you take that list, you map out the IPs to find out the geographic location, copy all the U.S.'s addresses, if you want to do it in the U.S., into a list, and that becomes Exhibit A, for which you should now file a John Doe lawsuit against all of these numbers representing that you're suing a number of people at once, and now you need to find out who they are. So then you file a motion with a court asking them to grant what's called early discovery, because in most instances, that's the only way you're getting information on who these numbers belong to. Now, if the court grants the motion for early discovery, the attorney with subpoena power now sends the list to the respective internet service providers. They, in turn, more often than not, send information back. And because most people don't use VPNs, the IP belonging to your internet service provider will result in them saying, this is who it is, this is their billing information, here you go. Now, the next proper move would be to send a letter saying, we're suing you, if you wish to discuss or settle, we'll accept X by Y. That part's kind of normal, I guess. But early discovery, it was designed to help a plaintiff move the early stages of litigation along, not be abused. Now, most people who get a letter will try and negotiate, they'll pay. But if it's from a troll, the smartest is to call BS and wait and see uh, if there's evidence before paying. If a person doesn't agree to settle, you're supposed to, or you should, the proper thing to do would be to amend the complaint, name that person, serve the lawsuit, and continue to push it through the court system until the parties reach an agreement or it's tried or not appealed. Prenda abused the shit out of that. So the reality is litigation is expensive to enter into, uh, to file a single suit with service. It's about $1,500. So if, even if you had an attorney write up the softest, cheapest complaint on the best big brother deal, you're still at four to five K. So understanding that in order for a troll model to work, you need a couple of things. You need more people to be settling with you than paying to mount a defense and you need to be able to get information on those on those users as cheap as possible. So in order for Prenda to make the John Doe suits cost effective, they lump thousands of IP addresses into a single filing and then ask the court to grant early discovery. They then sent the subpoenas to AT&T and Charter and Comcast who gave them the information under that court order of who was using an IP address on a particular date and time. And once they got that information or a troll uses, gets that information, same thing, they stop movement on the case and all they do is start sending letters and making calls and threats. They need you to pay them, not fight them. So it was a numbers game for them. And like most trolls, they don't intend on pushing an actual lawsuit forward. Judges have gotten smart to this scheme and are not liberally granting motions for early discovery in cases that look like they're trolling. And as I've shared, the purpose of a John Doe suits to gain information to streamline the litigation of copyright claims it's not for leveraging settlement payments. So the purpose of a judge is to judge. That's why they want these cases to move forward. Without a judge, there's no one to say, hey, this person's innocent. This person's guilty. This isn't right. And I'm almost done kind of giving you backstory before I jump into the, the spicy stuff. But this year in 2019, 
Strike Three Holdings LLC versus John Doe. And there's been many of those, but there's a case out of New York that's a good example. Strike Three Holdings has filed about 3,000 lawsuits in the last couple of years, typically against, wait for it, John Doe's. So a judge in New York said, and I'm quoting, allowing expedited discovery in these circumstances creates a risk that Strike Three will be in a position to effectively coerce the identified subscribers into paying thousands of dollars to settle claims that may or may not have merit. So as to avoid either cost of litigation or the embarrassment of being sued for using unlawful means to view adult material, end quote. The judges kind of get it. So over the years, I've quite purposefully worked to help those I believe that have been falsely accused of copyright infringement by real trolls. And I've assisted attorneys in mounting defenses against troll companies. I fucking despise it. To me, it's carpet bombing for profit because real people who really didn't do much of anything get swept up. And since they don't know what they don't know, they get taken advantage of and feel forced to pay for silence. Now, I'm not saying there aren't legitimate copyright claims in that pile, but more often than not, the evidence they use is thin at best, uh, questionable and definitely suspect. They bank on a mark just paying to make them go away. They're not looking to have a case go the distance. They bank on you agreeing to settle. Now, Prenda... These guys knew this, but they also knew that if you used adult terms and the possibility of publicity, people would roll over. So finally, here we go. Prenda Law. John Steele first came on the scene in October 2010 at a private invitation-only content uh, protection gathering in Tucson, Arizona. Now, to this small group of hand-picked uh, invite-only studio owners and a few choice and trusted attorneys, John Steele, while wearing... I'll never forget it. Skull and Crossbones Cufflinks shared his idea for this money-making utopia. And yeah, he wore the logo of pirates to talk anti-piracy. At this moment in time, he didn't look like a drunk cokehead who just wanted to fuck porn stars and strippers. Paul, in comparison, is uh, the reserved one who would rather sit at a desk and come up with more ways to get money from marks than be with people. He just looks uncomfortable in a crowd. Uh, now, I didn't have much experience of Duffy, uh, but when it got too hot, he took the Nick Cage leaving Las Vegas route to get out of all of this trouble. Now, John is and was the Prenda Law mouthpiece. His sales pitch was something to the effect of, we're going to get contact information about people who touch adult content on torrents. We're going to send them demanding letters that basically say, we caught you watching gay, black, dick, fat, booty, sex, part 27. And if you don't pay us, we're going to sue you and your neighbors, family. And he actually said this, church will find out. I'm going to stop right here. If you thought extortion, you'd be pretty fucking close. Now, the model itself is not illegal. If the receiving party did, in fact, download or view or sell or redistribute gay, black, dick, fat, booty, sex, part 27, then there's, there's potentially a legitimate claim. The problem is, from my eyes on torrents, the evidence isn't as clear as I would like it. Because of the way torrents work, it's easier to land on. It's possible they did. We don't know for sure, in fact, that they did this with the whole movie. So it's morally suspect, but it's not illegal. It's what John and Paul did later that repeatedly crossed the lines. The adult industry has worked hard and spent tens of millions of dollars to be able to operate legally with defined guidelines. In that space, the gay adult industry has worked harder because most have had to overcome their own personal struggles and more prejudice. So here comes an attorney who wants to use the maybe viewing habits of a person at the most private times and use personal adult themed search terms to basically extort money. They added that they were going to automate this extortion letter process 
and thought everyone should rejoice in their genius. <laughs> it was like a shockwave hit the fucking room. I was visibly pissed and I wasn't alone. In that instance, I locked eyes with Mark Randaza. He said, he's an attorney. And without speaking, we both had this, are you fucking kidding me? Did I hear that right look? Now that look was shared with others in the room all in about 10 seconds. And Steele was at the front continuing to pitch. I was the first on my feet, but I was the second to ask a question. I would have been the first, but one of the attorneys who I'll call Bill was so quick to get on his feet and explode with rage that I thought he was going to launch Steele through the fucking ceiling. Bill represented and still does a good chunk of the gay studio market and rightfully saw how dangerous these fuckers were. From that first day on that I heard John, I told every content producer I knew to steer clear of these guys. On a lunch break that day, John came over, introduces himself. I'm sitting down. He's standing up. So as he's reaching down to shake my hand, all I can do is stare at these freaking skull and bones cufflinks. It was just so damn arrogant. But he comes over, introduces himself, immediately jumps into a sales pitch. I was there as a studio owner who had already successfully won multiple copyright infringement cases. So I listened and I told them we could stay in touch, but I had no interest in going after users for pure profit and no strategic purpose. He said he wanted to talk more and maybe find a way for us to work together. I said, sure, why not? And if you're asking why would I want to even stay in touch with this guy, it's easy because friends close, enemies closer is a bit of a mission statement in some of the areas I work in. So flash forward, John successfully got some studios on board. He was filing John Doe lawsuits in mass, sending letters, collecting, and sending nice checks to his clients. Uh, on its face, none of that was illegal. It was opportunistic, yes, and, and some would say morally corrupt, but not illegal. What always kind of had me cocking my head, which is why it didn't smell right, is they were pulling in too much dough for what they were doing. Something else had to be amiss. Anyway, the system was not designed for that purpose, but the system was designed for that purpose, if that makes sense. So as time went on, judges, service providers, attorneys, and people who saw this for what it was started asking questions or they stood up. And that made the model harder and the margins a bit thinner. So they came up with a scheme to cut out the middleman and be the studio, the honeypot trapping people, and the enforcers. This is where the wheels came off the bus and the lines got crossed. They created an adult studio on paper using Paul's Gardner as the name studio owner on the shell companies. Uh, they set up foreign entities and accounts. They bought all rights to some content and made it available for the world to steal. They used the same model, but if judges didn't give them early discovery, it appears they may have forged subpoenas to get some of the information anyway. So let's step back. Like the Billionaire Boys Club and Bernie Madoff and others, the scheme looked great from the outside until it didn't. The Prenda Boys were making big money and spending it just the same. It was at this point, John fully morphed into who he thought he should be in the adult industry. And that was sloppy. They started sponsoring adult industry events and having a larger presence at trade shows. So with illicit fuel in his system, he was, forget the legal part. He was crossing lines that are frowned upon in the adult industry because it's not professional to sample or attempt to sample all of the product. And as a studio, you don't want your attorney being the sloppy guy at a party. I've seen a ton of outsiders who are invited in for a short period of time. They miss this point completely and they end up getting ostracized. They end up losing clients. They end up losing all their entire business as a result of it in some instances. So time goes on and here I am standing with John and Paul at a trade show in the middle of a naked model dodgeball event. And uh, John asked me again to join his business and he shared how much money I was leaving on the table by not doing this with him. And at this point, John had traded his wife for a stripper girlfriend. She was standing topless about six feet away. He said something and it sounded like he basically offered it up to me like a library card I could check out. 
I politely declined both offers, but since he didn't seem so sober and was chatty, I used it as an opportunity to ask questions. And he enthusiastically went on to explain how the operation was set up. The overseas setups, the money, the honeypots, the full racket. He didn't tell me about the Gardner front man or the details on the fake studio. That all came out later, but it was pretty obvious since no one had ever heard of the studio name that they were using to paper people. I also knew at that point that legal heat was turning up for them. Now, I know this, this model was starting to show holes uh, just based on what was going on in the industry. And I knew these guys were already in real trouble and their game was about to end. So partially because not three months earlier, I was asked about them by a judge. Completely unrelated, attorney Spencer Freeman and I were in a court-ordered mediation we had before trial in a case where our clients were suing a video-on-demand producer uh, or provider for selling our clients' content without a license, and we won that case. But Spencer and I are in this judge's chambers, and he asks me if this case was, was – well, he asks if the case, our case, was like those guys he was reading about in Chicago that were suing end users. We were in Los Angeles, California. So I said, Prenda and John Steele? He said, yes. How is this case not like theirs? Let's pause and take a moment. There had been no major or minor news story on Prenda, but his honor just told me that he had read about them. Judges don't typically just ask random nonspecific questions. And a judge now on the other side of the United States is asking me about these guys. The robes were talking and that in itself was kind of telling. Now, the judge was not accusing us of being like Prenda, but he knew from my resume, through my declarations, he made the connection, adult, adult. He told me that. And I explained how and what they were doing to the best of my ability. The judge then asked a few detailed questions about torrents, peer-to-peer technology, and how that relates to what they do. Now, I honestly told him without any colorful language what was going on, and he ended up saying, this doesn't sound like this at all. And he was using it as a, a fact-finding mission. But this is what was telling. The robes were getting smart to the scheme. This also telegraphed that the complaints I was involved with needed to really spell out what we found and how the sites we were targeting worked so that we could make sure there was no doubt that our clients weren't being seen as anything that was related to Prenda and their end-user scheme. So the difference in the Prenda model at this point for them is when the checks came in, they kept them and continued their entrapment scheme because now they were the studio. I also believe that they stopped accurately reporting how much money they were taking in for their actual studio clients so that they could keep more of that money. Judges stopped granting the easy path they wanted, so they created a workaround. And it looks like it was through forgery, perjury, and fraud. And that worked to some degree until a judge called them out and ordered the opening and investigation. And that's when the house of cards really started to, to fall. You would think somebody would just kind of say game over, but no, to make it worse for themselves, when asked questions about the scheme, they lied to the judge. They lied to investigators and they just lied, not once, but repeatedly for over a year. And they lied while acting as officers of the court because that's what attorneys are. So Melissa recently shared with me after I talked about Paul getting 14 years in jail that that seemed excessive because murderers can get less time. And yes, that's true. And just to understand, Paul was looking at over 20 years, but the entire legal system fails if people lie under oath. These guys lied, and then they lied to cover up the previous lies. And at no time until the 11th hour did Paul, when he was staring down the barrel of the rest of his life in jail, make any admission of guilt. And honestly, you can fact check me on this one. I'm pretty sure right now he's pissed, thinks it's right, and this is bullshit. 
And I will be shocked if he doesn't file an appeal on his sentencing from jail. It's not uncommon for attorneys who stand in courtrooms to bend a truth so that they can ethically provide the best offense or defense for their clients. But when that truth is not, and it's just a bold lie, and they know it's a lie, and they tell that lie, the system has to take you out of the game. So here's what you can do to call out a troll. And then I'm going to give you a real example of what I did this past year to help a person out, get out of the, the eyes and, and, and uh, crosshairs of a, of a troll. You can mount somewhat of a defense. First, if you did it, see if you can negotiate a lower amount and just be done with it. But if you think you can prove you didn't, or you think this ask is nuts, or they're just not being reasonable in your eyes and you want to try and fight them off, then listen up. You're going to want an attorney, preferably someone who has IP experience or someone who has experience dealing with trolls. You're going to need to be prepared to say and honor these words. Sue me. And you need to be prepared to back it up by defending yourself if they do. Whatever money you spend, assume you're not going to see it again. Find out if the content's registered. Now, here's the thing. If it's not registered, they really don't have much of a case. And that in itself is a tell because of actual versus statutory damages without attorney's fees. You're going to want whoever is gunning for you to show you whatever evidence they have. You want to see the evidence. You want them to prove that you downloaded the full version and had the ability to use what they said you downloaded. Chances are they won't be able to do it. When you ask to see the evidence, they'll probably tell you that the only way you're going to see it is if they sue you. And that should be your first red flag. And and you may say, why? Well, because it's bullshit to play hide the ball. If their evidence is that good, they shouldn't have a problem showing it to you. Their evidence is usually nothing but an IP address that crossed a digital path associated with some title of some work. So if judges have learned from these schemes, again, remember that they're less inclined to grant that, that early discovery. So really, that works to your benefit because it stops being cost-effective for them. And since they're not really fully documenting the infringements, they can't really properly plead a strong case. You can probably get that knocked out if they actually do file. So to put that in perspective, here's a real example of how I helped a studio owner's accountant get his son out of the sights of a troll this past year. So the new troll game that's getting looked at more doesn't really need the courts. It's what I'll call the password trader shakedown. Now, are there legitimate uses of this and can you use it for good and can you be absolutely right? Yes. That doesn't mean that that's how it's going to be used all the time. So here's one of the ways that it works. You become a paid member of the Leave Britney Alone fan club and somehow your username and password is used to download the Leave Britney Alone theme song and that song ends up on a shared file site like the Land of Torrents. The site owner sees the Britney theme song is available on that site, and because of the technology, they can trace it back to your username and password as the original person who downloaded the song from the website. I'm not going to go into specifics because I like the technology itself, and I see some long-term uses. But since you paid for the membership, the Leave Britney Alone fan club likely has your name, address, and email. So they send you a letter that says, if you don't do this by X, then we will do Y. Here's how it played out for this kid in real life. And I say kid because it's the son of the accountant, but this, this kid was in his early 20s and he gets an email and the email basically says, pay us $10,000 by Friday or we won't settle for less than 30000 after that and we'll file a lawsuit and everyone will find out that you downloaded gay big black booty sex part 28. Sound familiar? Yeah. These guys missed printed doing their bidding. So I spoke with the dad 
And he was prepared to pay something if he had to. Not the 10K they were asking or even the 30K he would have to pay if they crossed, if everyone crossed this imaginary deadline. And he had spoken to an attorney friend of his and he was really weighing his options. So I spoke with the son and I said, just tell me the truth. I can't help you if you're lying to me. That's just reality. So the email had a PDF letter attached to it. And what was interesting, what stood out to me is in the PDF, it represented that it was CC'd to an IP attorney, we'll call Alan. Now, I know Alan, I've worked with Alan, and nothing about this letter and Alan fit. And on its face, it's not uncommon for people to include an attorney in a demand for spice. But what smelled is that Alan was openly CC'd on the PDF, but not on the email. So I was doubtful if Alan even knew about the letter. And it was totally uncharacteristic because Alan does his own work and he's working in a completely separate industry right now. He's not even dealing with with uh, this type of IP law. So I looked to see if the content was registered. I looked at the track record of the studio litigating the claims and some other items. And when all the pieces of the puzzle were put together, I believed I was staring at a shakedown. So I told the dad and his son what I would like to do. I told him to run my suggestions across an attorney before I do anything. Now, I'm not an attorney, and it's important to me for people to hear all of the options, and our tactics can be a little unconventional, but they work. So I called Alan, the attorney who was CC'd on the on the letter, and right off the bat past hellos, I immediately jumped into it very quickly, and I went into the subject matter of the letter, told him that the person that they sent the letter to was willing to accept service of the lawsuit, and that I was just placing him with one of our litigators, and I needed a little bit more time if I could ask as a favor. I did that very purposefully. Alan says, let me stop you right there. What are you talking about? I don't represent them anymore. So, of course, very telling. So I shared what was going on. And, of course, I would happily honor Alan's request to send him a copy of the letter that was flashing his name. So what do I do? I wrote back to the sender of the original email, included the original letter attachment. And I knew the studio executive, albeit not well, but enough that I could share the reasons why he should just move on. And... I CC'd Alan and thanked him for his time on our call. So absolutely, I poked a bear with a stick. What did I do in that email? I had separated what was once two parties now into three parties, two of whom now have a larger issue than our guy has. So Alan's, I'm guessing his questions are how many of these letters have gone out? How many times has this guy collected money in my name? Or using my name? What other unknowns do I not know about? Am I exposed to any liability? Alan doesn't know, but Alan wants to know. And that has nothing to do with our guy. So, of course, the studio executive, after whatever dust settles for him, tries to push back on me. And even though I asked him in every email response, he wouldn't file a lawsuit. Why? Because he never had any intention of filing a lawsuit. So over the course of two weeks, he kept writing and wanting to tell me, and he just kept telling me what he was going to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I was like, do it. I finally sent him a link to a chart that showed how to take action steps. Yes, I continued poking the bear. So look, realistically, the reason I did this is because the likelihood that the company was going to do anything was about zero. So I absolutely played him for a bit. He wouldn't share any evidence. Alan had made it clear that he was absolutely not involved. So I just kept calling this guy's bullshit and I kept him talking. And so as a result of that, his own emails gave me enough ammo that if need be, and he actually filed, we'd throttle him. So end of the story, he moved on. And of course, not without telling me, he may rethink this decision and change his mind later. Yeah, fuck him. 
So I don't recommend you be as brazen as that, but feel free to use elements to help your situation or someone you know who may find themselves in this situation. Trolling is not limited to copyright situations. Collection agencies, predatory lenders, pump and dump schemes all use the same playbook. They capitalize by using fear tactics, fear of being found out, fear of missing out, fear of a huge fine, fear of being reported to a credit bureau. And the way that they deal with it is the same. And the way that I suggest you deal with it is the same, which is show me what you have. I'll figure out what I'm willing to spend and if I'm willing to spend, and then we can talk. Because to me, end user litigation is bullshit. So for Prenda, when the torrent model basically came to a halt because it would have been too hard to fight it on the merits, and they were told that they would have to go to these single file settings where they couldn't do these thousands of people, they needed a new model to feed the cow because the one that they used that I explained wasn't going to work anymore. And end user litigation on a one-to-one basis is not sustainable because you're, you're never going to be able to collect the amounts of money it would take you for the cost of entry on a regular basis. Courts have also gotten smarter. And recently, the Supreme Court helped to slow the model down in their ruling of Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corp versus WallStreet.com LLC, because in short, uh, they said a copyright is registered when the copyright office issues a registration number. Merely filing for a registration is not a registration. So when the copyright office gives you a number, yes, the, the official date of registration will be the day that you filed it, but until you get a number, it's not registered. So people can't just register content on Tuesday and run to the courthouse on Wednesday now. That kind of takes us into part two of Prenda. Uh, because they tried to hatch this business model. And as a result of it, a buddy of mine who has a content company, he got hurt because he anchored himself to this this sinking ship of Prenda. So my friend, we'll call him Stefan, is a, is a smart programmer, and he's always had an uncharacteristic, altruistic view of how online business should work. And some may say, well, this this matches my thought process, and some may say he's nuts, but he believes that people should be honest and not steal from each other. And we share that belief that people shouldn't steal. And he made millions and he spent millions on building his business. He hosted some of the most adventurous weekends and and parties, though I tried to beat it into him every chance I got. I could never understand why he wouldn't properly register his library because by the time he actually wanted to enforce it, he had lost a lot of the benefit, like the option of attorney's fees after winning a case. So I'm betting that as a result of not being able to fully leverage that angle and out of a desire to put a dent in piracy, he came up with this way to track and see what users were doing and if they were sharing and selling passwords to his website and then who was logging in and stealing and sharing his library. So in short, he kind of found a way to, to thwart some of these password traders, at least with his content. But past that, he just ended up with IP addresses. And so he needed to get information. So uh, how do we do that? Well, we've already explained how to do that. And what he did, though, is he got in touch with John Steele and shared everything he had going on. And Steele sees this as an opportunity. Now, the model, again, on its face, can use the same elements they were using before to garner the same results. So off they went. The problem was, is the house of cards was already starting to unravel. Service providers weren't going to be so quick to give information to Prenda Law Group, or John Steele, or Paul, or or Duffy. They were all too familiar with them. And now the courts weren't going to be so quick either to allow them to run amok. So I'll spare the details, but basically the service providers decided to take Steele and company to court by taking Stefan out for a walk. And in the end, Stefan had to pay a lot of money for time, and Steele, Hansmeier, and Duffy never fully actualized that model. 
Again, it's a viable one, but this is what happens when a legitimate content producer hooks into somebody who is not exactly honest. So all of that being said, let's recap. If you should get a letter, get as much information about the accusation as you can. Find out if the content's not registered or registered. Realize that you're in the driver's seat if it's not registered because the lawsuit will probably be too expensive for the other side. The only time I believe they would file is if they needed to make an example out of someone because their ability to collect on a judgment or even get a good number against what it would cost is pretty small. If you're a content producer, don't buy into these end user scams. Register your work. And if you want to enter into end user litigation, know that Prenda Law fucked up your ability to do it in a cost-effective structure and the smoke hasn't cleared. If end users are a problem, know that there are other ways of solving it. You can still make money by working to shift a problem without terrorizing massive amounts of people. Pulling virtual guns on users, and especially tech-savvy torrent users, is not going to end in a real win for you. They will come back and fuck with you in areas you haven't even thought of. So you're better off working at a deal, get a little money, and an agreement that they won't do it again or else. If you're using torrents or other peer-to-peer software to get content for free, Know that you're stealing a copy of something you could pay a small fee for. Do the right thing and let the content owner make something from their efforts and be a good online citizen. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review. You can check out more at intellectualpropertyhq.com or join our Facebook group at Intellectual Property HQ Community. If you join, you can ask questions, leverage the collective in the group, get more information and stay up to date on what's new as it relates to IP. Thank you for sharing some time with me today and I appreciate you. Jason Tucker is not an attorney. All of the information shared on this free podcast is his opinion and not legal advice. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. See you next time.